Section 3 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Dawn 2, Part 1. L'alba vinceva l'ora matutina che fuggia innanzi sì che di lontano conobi il tremolar della marina. Purgatorio uno. The crafts came originally from Antwerp. Old Jean-Michel had left the country as a result of a boyish freak, a violent quarrel, such as he had often had, for he was devilish pugnacious, and it had had an unfortunate ending. He settled down almost fifty years ago in the little town of the Principality, with its red-pointed roofs and shady gardens, lying on the slope of a gentle hill, mirrored in the pale green eyes of Vaterrhein. An excellent musician, he had readily gained appreciation in a country of musicians. He had taken root there by marrying, forty years ago, Clara Sartorius, daughter of the Prince's Kappelmeister, whose duties he took over. Clara was a placid German with two passions, cooking and music. She had for her husband a veneration only equaled by that which she had for her father. Jean-Michel no less admired his wife. They had lived together in perfect amity for fifteen years, and they had four children. Then Clara died, and Jean-Michel bemoaned her loss, and then, five months later, married Attilia Schutz, a girl of twenty, with red cheeks, robust and smiling. After eight years of marriage, she also died, but in that time she gave him seven children, eleven children in all, of whom only one had survived. Although he loved them much, all these bereavements had not shaken his good humor. The greatest blow had been the death of Attilia three years ago, which had come to him at an age when it is difficult to start life again and to make a new home. But after a moment's confusion, old Jean-Michel regained his equilibrium, which no misfortune seemed able to disturb. He was an affectionate man, but health was the strongest thing in him. He had a physical repugnance from sadness, and a need of gaiety, great gaiety, Flemish fashion, an enormous and childish laugh, Whatever might be his grief, he did not drink one drop the less, nor miss one bite at table, and his band never had one day off. Under his direction, the court orchestra won a small celebrity in the Rhine country, where Jean-Michel had become legendary by reason of his athletic stature and his outbursts of anger. He could not master them, in spite of all his efforts, for the violent man was at bottom timid and afraid of compromising himself. He loved decorum and feared opinion. But his blood ran away with him. He used to see red, and he used to be the victim of sudden fits of crazy impatience, not only at rehearsals, but at the concerts, where once in the prince's presence he had hurled his baton and had stamped about like a man possessed, as he apostrophized one of the musicians in a furious and stuttering voice. The prince was amused, 
but the artists in question were rancorous against him. In vain did Jean-Michel, ashamed of his outburst, try to pass it by immediately in exaggerated obsequiousness. On the next occasion he would break out again, and as this extreme irritability increased with age, in the end it made his position very difficult. He felt it himself, and one day, when his outbursts had all but caused the whole orchestra to strike, he sent in his resignation. He hoped that in consideration of his services they would make difficulties about accepting it, and would ask him to stay. There was nothing of the kind, and as he was too proud to go back on his offer, he left, broken-hearted, and crying out upon the ingratitude of mankind. Since that time he had not known how to fill his days. He was more than seventy, but he was still vigorous, and he went on working and going up and down the town from morning to night, giving lessons and entering into discussions, pronouncing perorations, and entering into everything. He was ingenious, and found all sorts of ways of keeping himself occupied. He began to repair musical instruments. He invented, experimented, and sometimes discovered improvements. He composed also, and set store by his compositions. He had once written a Misa Salenis, of which he used often to talk, and it was the glory of his family. It had cost him so much trouble that he had all but brought about a congestion of the mind in the writing of it. He tried to persuade himself that it was a work of genius, but he knew perfectly well with what emptiness of thought it had been written, and he dared not look again at the manuscript, because every time he did so he recognized in the phrases that he had thought to be his own rags taken from other authors, painfully pieced together haphazard. It was a great sorrow to him. He had ideas sometimes which he thought admirable. He would run tremblingly to his table. Could he keep his inspiration this time? But hardly had he taken pen in hand than he found himself alone in silence, and all his efforts to call to life again the vanished voices ended only in bringing to his ears familiar melodies of Mendelssohn or Brahms. There are, says George Sand, unhappy geniuses who lack the power of expression and carry down to their graves the unknown region of their thoughts. As has said a member of that great family of illustrious mutes or stammerers, Geoffrey St. Hilaire. Old Jean-Michel belonged to that family. He was no more successful in expressing himself in music than in words, and he always deceived himself. He would so much have loved to talk, to write, to be a great musician, an eloquent orator. It was his secret sore. He told no one of it, did not admit it to himself, tried not to think of it. But he did think of it, in spite of himself, and so there was the seed of death in his soul. Poor old man! In nothing did he succeed in being absolutely himself. There were in him so many seeds of beauty and power, but they never put forth fruit. A profound and touching faith in the dignity of art and the moral value of life, but it was nearly always translated in an emphatic and ridiculous fashion. So much noble pride 
and in life an almost servile admiration of his superiors, so lofty a desire for independence and, in fact, absolute docility, pretensions to strength of mind and every conceivable superstition, a passion for heroism, real courage, and so much timidity, a nature to stop by the wayside. Jean-Michel had transferred all his ambitions to his son, and at first Melchior had promised to realize them. From childhood he had shown great musical gifts. He learned with extraordinary facility, and quickly acquired as a violinist a virtuosity which for a long time made him the favorite, almost the idol, of the court concerts. He played the piano and other instruments pleasantly. He was a fine talker, well, though a little heavily built, and was of the type which passes in Germany for classic beauty. He had a large brow that expressed nothing, large regular features and a curled beard. A Jupiter of the banks of the Rhine, old Jean-Michel enjoyed his son's success. He was ecstatic over the virtuoso's tour de force, he who had never been able properly to play any instrument. In truth, Melchior would have had no difficulty in expressing what he thought. The trouble was that he did not think, and he did not even bother about it. He had the soul of a mediocre comedian, who takes pains with the inflections of his voice, without caring about what they express, and, with anxious vanity, watches their effect on his audience. The odd thing was that, in spite of his constant anxiety about his stage pose, there was in him, as in Jean-Michel, in spite of his timid respect for social conventions, a curious, irregular, unexpected and chaotic quality, which made people say that the crafts were a bit crazy. It did not harm him at first. It seemed as though these very eccentricities were the proof of the genius attributed to him, for it is understood among people of common sense that an artist has none. But it was not long before his extravagances were traced to their source, usually the bottle. Nietzsche says that Bacchus is the god of music, and Melchior's instinct was of the same opinion. But in his case his god was very ungrateful to him. Far from giving him the ideas he lacked, he took away from him the few that he had. After his absurd marriage, absurd in the eyes of the world, and therefore also in his own, he gave himself up to it more and more. He neglected his playing, so secure in his own superiority that very soon he lost it. Other virtuosi came to succeed him in public favor. That was bitter to him, but instead of rousing his energy, these rebuffs only discouraged him. He avenged himself by crying down his rivals with his potfellows. In his absurd conceit, he counted on succeeding his father as musical director. Another man was appointed. He thought himself persecuted and took on the airs of a misunderstood genius. Thanks to the esteem in which old craft was held, he kept his place as a violin in the orchestra, but gradually he lost all his lessons in the town. And if this blow struck most at his vanity, it touched his purse even more. For several years the resources of his household had grown less and less, following on various reverses of fortune, 
After having known plenty, want came, and every day increased. Melchior refused to take notice of it. He did not spend one penny the less on his toilet or his pleasures. He was not a bad man, but a half-good man, which is perhaps worse. Weak, without spring, without moral strength, but for the rest, in his own opinion, a good father, a good son, a good husband, a good man. And perhaps he was good, if to be so it is enough to possess an easy kindness, which is quickly touched, and that animal affection by which a man loves his kin as a part of himself. It cannot even be said that he was very egoistic. He had not personality enough for that. He was nothing. They are a terrible thing in life, these people who are nothing. Like a dead weight thrown into the air, they fall and must fall, and in their fall they drag with them everything that they have. It was when the situation of his family had reached its most difficult point that little Jean Christophe began to understand what was going on about him. He was no longer the only child. Melchior gave his wife a child every year, without troubling to think what was to become of it later. Two had died young. Two others were three and four years old. Melchior never bothered about them. Louisa, when she had to go out, left them with Jean Christophe, now six years old. The charge cost Jean Christophe something, for he had to sacrifice to his duty his splendid afternoons in the fields. But he was proud of being treated as a man, and gravely fulfilled his task. He amused the children as best he could by showing them his games, and he set himself to talk to them as he had heard his mother talking to the baby or he would carry them in his arms, one after another, as he had seen her do. He bent under their weight, and clenched his teeth, and with all his strength clutched his little brother to his breast, so as to prevent his falling. The children always wanted to be carried. They were never tired of it, and when Jean Christophe could do no more, they wept without ceasing. They made him very unhappy, and he was often troubled about them. They were very dirty, and needed maternal attentions. Jean-Christophe did not know what to do. They took advantage of him. Sometimes he wanted to slap them, but he thought, They are little. They do not know. And magnanimously he let them pinch him and beat him and tease him. Ernest used to howl for nothing. He used to stamp his feet and roll about in a passion. He was a nervous child, and Louisa had bidden Jean Christophe not to oppose his whims. As for Rodolphe, he was as malicious as a monkey. He always took advantage of Jean Christophe having Ernest in his arms to play all sorts of silly pranks behind his back. He used to break toys, spill water, dirty his frock, and knock the plates over as he rummaged in the cupboard. And when Louisa returned, instead of praising Jean Christophe, she used to say to him, without scolding him, but with an injured air, as she saw the havoc, My poor child, you are not very clever. Jean Christophe would be mortified, and his heart would grow big within him. Louisa, who let no opportunity escape of earning a little money, used to go out as cook for exceptional occasions, such as marriages or baptismal feasts. Melchior pretended to know nothing about it. It touched his vanity. 
but he was not annoyed with her for doing it, so long as he did not know. Jean Christophe had as yet no idea of the difficulties of life. He knew no other limit to his will than the will of his parents, and that did not stand much in his way, for they let him do pretty much as he pleased. His one idea was to grow up, so as to be able to do as he liked. He had no conception of obstacles standing in the way at every turn, and he had never the least idea but that his parents were completely their own masters. It was a shock to his whole being when, for the first time, he perceived that among men there are those who command and those who are commanded, and that his own people were not of the first class. It was the first crisis of his life. It happened one afternoon. His mother had dressed him in his cleanest clothes, old clothes given to her which Louise's ingenuity and patience had turned to account. He went to find her, as they had agreed, at the house in which she was working. He was abashed at the idea of entering alone. A footman was swaggering in the porch. He stopped the boy and asked him patronizingly what he wanted. Jean Christophe blushed and murmured that he had come to see Frau Kraft, as he had been told to say. Frau Kraft? What do you want with Frau Kraft? asked the footman, ironically emphasizing the word Frau. Your mother? Go down there. You will find Louisa in the kitchen at the end of the passage. He went, growing redder and redder. He was ashamed to hear his mother called familiarly Louisa. He was humiliated. He would have liked to run away down to his dear river and the shelter of the brushwood where he used to tell himself stories. In the kitchen he came upon a number of other servants who greeted him with noisy exclamations. At the back, near the stove, his mother smiled at him with tender embarrassment. He ran to her and clung to her skirts. She was wearing a white apron and holding a wooden spoon. She made him more unhappy by trying to raise his chin so as to look in his face and to make him hold out his hand to everybody there and say good day to them. He would not. He turned to the wall and hid his face in his arms. Then gradually he gained courage and peeped out of his hiding place with merry bright eyes, which hid again every time anyone looked at him. He stole looks at the people there. His mother looked busy and important, and he did not know her like that. She went from one saucepan to another, tasting, giving advice, in a sure voice explaining recipes, and the cook of the house listened respectfully. The boy's heart swelled with pride as he saw how much his mother was appreciated and the great part that she played in this splendid room adorned with magnificent objects of gold and silver. Suddenly conversation ceased. The door opened. A lady entered with a rustling of the stuffs she was wearing. She cast a suspicious look about her. She was no longer young, and yet she was wearing a light dress with wide sleeves. She caught up her dress in her hand so as not to brush against anything. It did not prevent her going to the stove and looking at the dishes and even tasting them. When she raised her hand a little, her sleeve fell back and her arm was bare to the elbow. Jean Christophe thought this ugly and improper. How dryly and abruptly she spoke to Louisa and how humbly Louisa replied. Jean Christophe hated it. He hid away in his corner so as not to be observed, but it was no use. The lady asked who the little boy might be. Louisa fetched him and presented him. 
She held his hands to prevent his hiding his face, and though he wanted to break away and flee, Jean Christophe felt instinctively that this time he must not resist. The lady looked at the boy's scared face, and at first she gave him a kindly motherly smile. But then she resumed her patronizing air, and asked him about his behavior and his piety, and put questions to him, to which he did not reply. She looked to see how his clothes fitted him, and Louisa eagerly declared that they were magnificent. She pulled down his waistcoat to remove the creases. Jean-Christophe wanted to cry. It fitted so tightly. He did not understand why his mother was giving thanks. The lady took him by the hand and said that she would take him to her own children. Jean-Christophe cast a look of despair at his mother, but she smiled at the mistress so eagerly that he saw that there was nothing to hope for from her, and he followed his guide like a sheep that is led to the slaughter. They came to a garden where two cross-looking children, a boy and a girl, about the same age as Jean-Christophe, were apparently sulky with each other. Jean-Christophe's advent created a diversion. They came up to examine the new arrival. Jean-Christophe, left with the children by the lady, stood stock still in a pathway, not daring to raise his eyes. The two others stood motionless a short distance away and looked him up and down, nudged each other and tittered. Finally they made up their minds. They asked him who he was, whence he came, and what his father did. Jean-Christophe, turned to stone, made no reply. He was terrified almost to the point of tears, especially of the little girl who had fair hair in plaits, a short skirt, and bare legs. They began to play. Just as Jean-Christophe was beginning to be a little happier, the little boy stopped dead in front of him, and touching his coat said, "'Hello, that's mine!' Jean-Christophe did not understand. Furious at this assertion that his coat belonged to someone else, he shook his head violently in denial. "'I know it all right,' said the boy. "'It's my old blue waistcoat. There's a spot on it.' And he put his finger on the spot. Then going on with his inspection, he examined Jean-Christophe's feet and asked what his mended-up shoes were made of. Jean-Christophe grew crimson. The little girl pouted and whispered to her brother. Jean-Christophe heard it, that it was a little poor boy. Jean-Christophe resented the word. He thought he would succeed in combating the insulting opinions as he stammered in a choking voice that he was the son of Melchior Kraft and that his mother was Louisa the cook. It seemed to him that this title was as good as any other, and he was right. But the two children, interested in the news, did not seem to esteem him any the more for it. On the contrary, they took on a patronizing tone. They asked him what he was going to be, a cook or a coachman. Jean-Christophe revolted. He felt an iciness steal into his heart. Encouraged by his silence, the two rich children, who had conceived for the little poor boy one of those cruel and unreasoning antipathies which children have, tried various amusing ways of tormenting him. The little girl especially was implacable. She observed that Jean Christophe could hardly run because his clothes were so tight, and she conceived the subtle idea of making him jump. They made an obstacle of little seats, 
and insisted on Jean Christophe clearing it. The wretched child dared not say what it was that prevented his jumping. He gathered himself together, hurled himself through the air, and measured his length on the ground. They roared with laughter at him. He had to try again. Tears in his eyes, he made a desperate attempt, and this time succeeded in jumping. That did not satisfy his tormentors, who decided that the obstacle was not high enough, and they built it up until it became a regular breakneck affair. Jean-Christophe tried to rebel, and declared that he would not jump. Then the little girl called him a coward, and said that he was afraid. Jean-Christophe could not stand that, and knowing that he must fall, he jumped and fell. His feet caught in the obstacle. The whole thing toppled over with him. He grazed his hands and almost broke his head, and as a crowning misfortune his trousers tore at the knees and elsewhere. He was sick with shame. He heard the two children dancing with delight round him. He suffered horribly. He felt that they despised and hated him. Why? Why? He would gladly have died. There is no more cruel suffering than that of a child who discovers for the first time the wickedness of others. He believes then that he is persecuted by the whole world, and there is nothing to support him. There is nothing then, nothing. Jean-Christophe tried to get up. The little boy pushed him down again. The little girl kicked him. He tried again, and they both jumped on him and sat on his back and pressed his face down into the ground. Then rage seized him. It was too much. His hands were bruised. His fine coat was torn. A catastrophe for him. Shame, pain, revolt against the injustice of it. So many misfortunes all at once plunged him in blind fury. He rose to his hands and knees, shook himself like a dog, and rolled his tormentors over, and when they returned to the assault, he butted at them, head down, bowled over the little girl, and with one blow of his fist, knocked the boy into the middle of a flower-bed. They howled. The children ran into the house with piercing cries. Doors slammed, and cries of anger were heard. The lady ran out as quickly as her long dress would let her. Jean-Christophe saw her coming, and made no attempt to escape. He was terrified at what he had done. It was a thing unheard of, a crime, but he regretted nothing. He waited. He was lost. So much the better. He was reduced to despair. The lady pounced on him. He felt her beat him. He heard her talking in a furious voice, a flood of words, but he could distinguish nothing. His little enemies had come back to see his shame and screamed shrilly. There were servants, a babble of voices. To complete his downfall, Louisa, who had been summoned, appeared, and instead of defending him, she began to scold him. She, too, without knowing anything, and bade him beg pardon. He refused angrily. She shook him and dragged him by the hand to the lady and the children and bade him go on his knees. But he stamped and roared and bit his mother's hand. Finally he escaped among the servants, who laughed. He went away, his heart beating furiously, his face burning with anger and the slaps which he had received. He tried not to think, and he hurried along because he did not want to cry in the street. 
He wanted to be at home, so as to be able to find the comfort of tears. He choked. The blood beat in his head. He was at bursting point. Finally he arrived. He ran up the old black staircase to his usual nook in the bay of a window above the river. He hurled himself into it breathlessly, and then there came a flood of tears. He did not know exactly why he was crying, but he had to cry, and when the first flood of them was done, he wept again because he wanted, with a sort of rage, to make himself suffer, as if he could in this way punish the others as well as himself. Then he thought that his father must be coming home, and that his mother would tell him everything, and that his own miseries were by no means at an end. He resolved on flight, no matter whither, never to return. Just as he was going downstairs, he bumped into his father, who was coming up. "'What are you doing, boy? Where are you going?' asked Melchior. He did not reply. "'You are up to some folly. What have you done?' Jean-Christophe held his peace. "'What have you done?' repeated Melchior. "'Will you answer?' The boy began to cry, and Melchior to shout, vying with each other until they heard Louisa hurriedly coming up the stairs— she arrived, still upset. She began with violent reproach and further chastisement, in which Melchior joined as soon as he understood, and probably before, with blows that would have felled an ox. Both shouted. The boy roared. They ended by angry argument. All the time that he was beating his son, Melchior maintained that he was right and that this was the sort of thing that one came by, by going out to service with people who thought they could do everything because they had money. And as she beat the child, Louisa shouted that her husband was a brute, that she would never let him touch the boy, and that he had really hurt him. Jean-Christophe was, in fact, bleeding a little from the nose, but he hardly gave a thought to it, and he was not in the least thankful to his mother for stopping it with a wet cloth since she went on scolding him. In the end, they pushed him away in a dark closet and shut him up without any supper. He heard them shouting at each other, and he did not know which of them he detested most. He thought it must be his mother, for he had never expected any such wickedness from her. All the misfortunes of the day overwhelmed him. All that he had suffered— the injustice of the children, the injustice of the lady, the injustice of his parents, and, this he felt like an open wound, without quite knowing why, the degradation of his parents, of whom he was so proud before these evil and contemptible people. Such cowardice, of which for the first time he had become vaguely conscious, seemed ignoble to him. Everything was upset for him. His admiration for his own people— the religious respect with which they inspired him, his confidence in life, the simple need that he had of loving others and of being loved, his moral faith, blind but absolute. It was a complete cataclysm. He was crushed by brute force, without any means of defending himself or of ever again escaping. He choked. He thought himself on the point of death. All his body stiffened in desperate revolt. He beat with fists, feet, head against the wall, howled, was seized with convulsions, and fell to the floor, hurting himself against the furniture. His parents, running up, took him in their arms. They vied with each other now as to who should be the more tender with him. His mother undressed him, 
carried him to his bed, and sat by him and remained with him until he was calmer. But he did not yield one inch. He forgave her nothing, and pretended to be asleep to get rid of her. His mother seemed to him bad and cowardly. He had no suspicion of all the suffering that she had to go through in order to live and give a living to her family, and of what she had borne in taking sides against him. After he had exhausted to the last drop the incredible store of tears that is in the eyes of a child, he felt somewhat comforted. He was tired and worn out, but his nerves were too much on stretch for him to sleep. The visions that had been with him floated before him again in his semi-torpor. Especially he saw again the little girl with her bright eyes and her turned-up, disdainful little nose, her hair hanging down to her shoulders, her bare legs and her childish, affected way of talking. He trembled as it seemed to him that he could hear her voice. He remembered how stupid he had been with her, and he conceived a savage hatred for her. He did not pardon her for having brought him low, and was consumed with the desire to humiliate her and to make her weep. He sought means of doing this, but found none. There was no sign of her ever caring about him. But by way of consoling himself, he supposed that everything was as he wished it to be. He supposed that he had become very powerful and famous, and decided that she was in love with him. Then he began to tell himself one of those absurd stories which in the end he would regard as more real than reality. She was dying of love, but he spurned her. When he passed before her house she watched him pass, hiding behind the curtains, and he knew that she watched him, but he pretended to take no notice and talked gaily. Even he left the country and journeyed far to add to her anguish. He did great things. Here he introduced into his narrative fragments chosen from his grandfather's heroic tales, and all this time she was falling ill of grief. Her mother, that proud dame, came to beg of him. "'My poor child is dying. I beg you to come.' He went. She was in her bed. Her face was pale and sunken. She held out her arms to him. She could not speak, but she took his hands and kissed them as she wept. Then he looked at her with marvellous kindness and tenderness. He bade her recover and consented to let her love him. At this point of the story, when he amused himself by drawing out the coming together by repeating their gestures and words several times, sleep overcame him, and he slept and was consoled. But when he opened his eyes it was day, and it no longer shone so lightly or so carelessly as its predecessor. There was a great change in the world. Jean Christophe now knew the meaning of injustice. End of section 3